little differently this morning um, because of our ministry fair out in the hallway, which is why I was uh, caught out there signing folks up for small groups, which, by the way, if you're not in a small group, consider this your word of pastoral admonition and encouragement to get into a group. It's going to be good for you. Uh, You will enjoy it. And failing that, you will build relationships with people who uh, enjoy you and who will, um, who will be there for you as part of the Christian community. You know, the thing is, as you, um, as you come to church here on a Sunday morning, you know, it's a little bit tough to build relationships of much depth beyond, hey, how you doing? How's the coffee this morning? Uh, did you get a donut? You know, these kinds of things that we talk about, or how about those bears, or whatever, right? Um, you know, maybe they'll have a good year this year. They always look great on the early season, right? And, um, you know, to be a Chicago sports fan is to live by the axiom that hope triumphs over experience. <laughs> but in any case, um, in any case, uh, we want you to be able to have deep relationships with one another, to really experience the fellowship of the people of the, of the Son of God, of the body of Christ, uh, with one another. And part of that process involves getting into a smaller group where you can share, where you can care for one another, where you can um, visit one another uh, at the hospital as those needs come up, um, as, um, as other kinds of personal needs would come up from time to time that you would minister to each other. Uh, that's part of the goal. And then in addition to that, There's a whole raft of stuff to do here at the church. We've been talking about spiritual gifts for the last several weeks. We'll wrap up that discussion next week. Uh, But you are given by the Spirit of God a spiritual gift, and you are entrusted with it to be used. Amen? It's not there as a decoration. It's not like those knickknacks you all have a shelf for at home if you're a lady. You know, uh, it's not there to be displayed, it's to be used in service to the body of Christ and to one another. And so there's all kinds of ministries that are uh, have sign-up sheets out there. You've got youth ministry and children's ministry and women's ministry and men's fraternity and uh, operations team and missions and uh, joy in the morning circle group and all kinds of stuff. I've probably left out five or six things, but in any case, by... Music ministry, yes. You can be involved in all kinds of stuff according to your gifts and desires. So, sign up for at least one thing and a small group. All right? So, um, we have uh, come here this morning, I hope, with the desire to worship God in the beauty of His holiness. Amen? And He is not like anything else in all of creation but He is the unique, tri-personal God. He is infinite in His perfections. He is limitless in His power. And He is rich in mercy. And you know, we have been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians now since January. I promise we will finish sometime before year end. Uh, We're in chapter 14 now, but we'll, we'll get through 16, I'm sure, by the end of September. But what we want to do today... The thing is, is that 1 Corinthians is a book that is written to Paul's problem child. They were enough of a problem, he wrote them two letters, 
uh, because the first one didn't evidently correct everything that was going on. And since it's a book about correction and, and giving a lot of instruction, stop doing that. A lot of times the messages that, that um, are based on the text that Paul has written start feeling sort of pointy and sort of corrective in their tone. And you can lose sight in that of the glorious grace and mercy of God as we focus without break on sin and rebuking it and turning from it and repenting of it. And so today what I want to do, I just want to step back from 1 Corinthians for just this week. We'll get back to it, I promise. But what I want to do is just lift our eyes upward for a minute and look away from our sin and up toward the Savior who redeems us from it, who defeats it, and who will defeat it for all of us ultimately at the end. And so, if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. This is uh, the letter written to the church at Ephesus. All right, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to start with just the first three verses. So, if you've got your Bible open, uh, follow along with me as I read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now these verses, if you want to just outline the text here as I have, these are what you were. This is past tense. Things that described you as a non-Christian. Before you came to faith in Christ, these are some of these things. Uh, they don't describe what we are today. They describe what we were. And if you're a theologian or you like theology, this is the passage, this is one of the passages that is key if you want to talk in terms of human beings and their total depravity. What that means is, generally speaking, is that not that every person who is born is born with a sin nature um, and therefore is as bad as they could be, because not everybody is as evil as they possibly could be, but that everybody is as bad off in terms of their relationship with God as they can possibly be. That every person who was born into this world since Adam and Eve uh, is born with a sin nature and therefore born separated from God. They are sinners. They are, we are just as bad off as we could be. We are separated from God. We are destined for hell. And I want to look at each of these uh, terms that Paul uses here in these verses. He says, you were dead, first of all, in your trespasses and sins. Now, the dead here doesn't refer to physical life, obviously. Uh, if you've met any unbelievers, you know that they are very much alive. Uh, they uh, are living and breathing and running and doing all kinds of things. They're not dead physically, at least not yet. That's later. But they are. there is no part of them which is alive to God. They are spiritually 
dead. And the just punishment for sin is death. And so even while we are alive as an unbeliever, we are dead because the death sentence has already been pronounced and God always keeps his word. And as long as we remain sinners, we are dead. And just as the dead have no relationship with the living, so we, all of us, were once dead and had no relationship with God. That our sins put us to death in terms of our relationship with God and would eventually put us to complete death, complete separation from God in hell. We were dead. And in, instead of following God, we were following the text says, the course of this world, that unbelievers follow the lifestyle of other unbelievers, that if you've ever seen dead fish, what do they do? They float downstream, right? They just follow the direction of the stream they're in. And if you're an unbeliever, you float downstream like all the other dead people. And you do, you follow the course of the river wherever it flows, and the word that's used here for world is not the is not the world that talks it's not the word that talks about the world as the plant as planet Earth. It's the it's the world system, the word cosmos. It's the word that we get our word cosmopolitan. It's the word that refers to this whole system of thought and action and culture, which is alienated from and rebellious against God. And Paul says that we followed the way of the, of the world. Of We moved along with the currents of our culture, of the people we're around, and we did what they do. And every merely human culture is in some way, to some degree, tainted by sin. And those who follow its course naturally go into sin just like everybody else. And in addition, if when we were unbelievers, we were following the evil one. We are not just following the world, we're following the evil one. Here he's called the prince of the power of the air. And to, to join in rebellion against God by committing sin either, is to either consciously or unconsciously choose to join the evil one, the original rebel, in his rebellion against God. And as Jesus said in Matthew 12, uh, verse 30, he says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. It's a binary choice. Follow Jesus, follow Satan. Every kind of false religion, every sort of worldview and belief which is opposed to God through, through faith in Jesus Christ is from the evil one. Period. Now, it might not look that way. It might have a very nice facade. There might even be people who are doing good works through it, feeding the poor, uh, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, etc. But it is nevertheless, Paul says, binary, following Jesus or following Satan, one or the other. And when we were unbelievers, we were joined with Satan in rebellion against God. And... Paul goes on to describe Satan as not just the spirit who is the prince and the power of the air, but he says is the spirit now at work 
in the sons of disobedience. In other words, this is something which is ongoing. That those who are unbelievers are, are now influenced by and led by and controlled by Satan himself. That they have put themselves under Satan's influence and in the realm of his control. And what is worse than all these things is that not only are we in active rebellion with God, not only have we joined both the world and the devil, we are actually enjoying it. That's verse 3. That we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind. In other words, if it felt good to us and seemed good to us, we did it. And all of our thinking, all of our desires, all of our actions, they were all corrupted by sin. There was no part of us which was this little holy moment we were having over here. Even the good things that we did were corrupted and tainted by sin. And if you look through the passage, what you see here is that the three classic enemies that Scripture identifies of, of the believer are all in there. The world, the devil, and the flesh. And the flesh is not just your body. I mean, your body does have desires uh, you know, to eat and to sleep and other things. But it's the, it's the whole nature that you are born with as a sinner which is bent away from God, such that your desires, both body and mind, are corrupt. That they are tainted by sin. And I won't go into detail on all the ways that can happen, but because I think you already know. That, that the things that I want and the way that I want them is corrupted by sin as an unbeliever. And by the way, just as an aside here, Calling someone a son of something or a child of something is a Jewish idiom. It's a way of speaking that says that someone is so characterized by a particular quality, it is as if that quality were their father. And so when you call someone a son of disobedience, it means this person is someone who has given themselves over to disobedience. And when you call someone a child of God's wrath, it means that because you are a son of disobedience, that you have therefore incurred the penalty for your disobedience, which is God's wrath. The only relationship that you have with God as a person who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ is as the object of His wrath. So you have a relationship with God in a certain sense, but it's a bad one. It is one you do not want because you are the object of his wrath. Because of your sin and rebellion, you are a traitor against God and you deserve capital punishment for your crime. And that is what you are sentenced to as an unbeliever. That's bad news. I want to read you one important word, verse 4. But, but, verse 4, let's read the rest of it. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're going to stop there. There's a lot more. This is good stuff. This is good news. If you ever want to know why the gospel is good news, read the first three verses and then get to verse 4 through 6 of this chapter. This is good news. This is great stuff here. These are the two best. The first two words in verse 4 are the best words in this whole chapter. You ought to put a little yellow highlighter on those. They are great words. But God... All this stuff was happening to us because of our rebellion against sin and our rejection of God, and we wanted nothing to do with Him, and every fiber of our being stiff-armed Him and held Him off and said, Go away! And as a result, God had no choice but to judge us and to, and to subject us to eternal punishment and separation from Him. But God stepped in. And when he stepped in, he reversed our situation. And there are three great verbs that are here in, this, in, this ver- in these verses. I want to show them to you. That first of all, God made us alive together with Christ. If you look at it with me, what were we? We were dead. But God made us alive. God is not just merciful. He is rich in mercy. He doesn't just love us. He has a great love for us, even when we were dead in our sin. In other words, even when we were his enemies, even when we hated him, he did not hate us. He loved us. And even in the midst of our rebellion against him, even even when we were opposed to him, even when we wanted nothing to do with him, the same power which raised Jesus from the dead gave us new life in Christ. And the same power that confirmed Jesus' identity as the Son of God by raising Him from the dead, raised us from the dead. That we were brought to life. All of a sudden, we who were spiritually dead are now spiritually alive. And it was not based, look at the text, it was not based on anything that we did. It was by grace. It was, in fact, in spite of everything that we did. That God loved us and He brought us to life. And we have received eternal life and we are saved right now. Look at this. By grace, you have been saved. That's a perfect tense. Now, you grammarians out there, what that means is, is that this has already occurred at some point in the past. Sometimes people think of their salvation as something which they will get when they die. That, well, when I die, because I've put my trust in Christ, well, then I have salvation. Well, in a certain sense, that's true. That you are delivered from the presence of sin in your life, and you enter into the presence of God, and you behold the face of the Savior. That is ultimately what the goal is of our salvation. But we possess our salvation now. That we have it right now. We have been saved from the power of sin over us and from the penalty of sin, death and hell. 
and we will be delivered one day from the presence of sin when we behold the Savior. But we have our salvation right now. We have been brought to life from the dead. Now look at the next verse. Uh, uh, the next verb here, Paul, so Paul writes that we are raised up with Christ. Just as Jesus did not stay in the grave but rose, just as he defeated death for us, we will have also defeated death because we belong to him. One day, unless Jesus returns, one day all of us will die. The statistics are all in one out of one dies unless Jesus returns. And then you're translated into a new body if you're still on the earth at that time. But otherwise, we will die. And then just as he rose, we will rise. In fact, Paul is so confident of that, he writes about it as if it has already happened. It's a future event, but he writes about it in the past tense, that we have been raised with Christ. It's as if it has already occurred. You know why you can write that way if you're a believer? Because God's promises are certain and they are sure. And there is no possibility that they will fail. And so Paul says that we have been raised into God's presence with Christ. And death holds no fear for us. You know, here's the thing. Christians die, but they don't really die. Not in the way an unbeliever does. An unbeliever dies and experiences separation from God. That, the Scripture says, is the second death. But do you know what Paul says happens to believers when they die? He says, to be absent from the body is to be face-to-face -face with the Lord. So that it, and in some sense, is like, like opening a door and crossing through into a new experience. That to shut your eyes for the final time, to have the final brainwave and the final heartbeat, is to open your eyes into a, a realm you have never experienced in the presence of the Savior. Now, if that's death, bring it on, baby. I'm ready. Death holds no fear for the Christian because we have already been raised with Christ. We are already experiencing also by the Spirit the new kind of life that flows from relationship with Jesus. Amen? We already have, in some sense, the new life we have already been raised, in some sense, from death into new life now. And what we have now, in fact, Paul writes elsewhere in, first, in the first chapter of Ephesians, he writes of how the Holy Spirit is given us as a seal of our promised inheritance. And the idea is, the word that he uses there is used in a couple of senses. It's used in, of legal transactions where somebody would put down, as an example, earnest money when they're buying a house to say, I am in earnest. I am going to complete this transaction. And the Holy Spirit is like a deposit put down on, a, on, a, on us to guarantee that God will one day adopt us. 
Or the other context that's used and would be like also in, the, in those days a, a legal arrangement, like an engagement ring. You know, that's what you guys do, right? When you fall in love with a girl, as I did once upon a time, you, you go down to the best jewelry store you can afford, you plunk down two, three months' salary on a little piece of gold with a shiny rock on the top, right? And you get down on one knee and you pray like crazy that this girl that you are nuts about is going to say yes. I cried when Karen said yes. I was like, and I'm not ashamed to say it, boy. I have the best thing ever happened to me in my life right then, right? And, and, but you give her that ring. Why? Because it's a promise. It's the seal of a promise that, that this is the initiating sign of my love for you. But one day, you're going to enter into the gloriousness of marriage with me. Now, here's the deal. The Holy Spirit is given, as a, in a sense, as our engagement ring from Jesus. That, in a sense, He is saying to us, this is my, you, you will experience my presence right now, but I have something much better waiting for you then, and you will experience my presence face to face, and you will see me. And if you enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit and the new life you have now, just wait, because you've been raised up with Christ, and you will experience God's presence in a much greater way in the days to come. And then last, last verb here, verse, uh, verse 6, that God has seated us with Christ. Now underline that word seated in your Bible. It's important. Under the Old Covenant, you remember the tabernacle and the temple? If you've read those sections in your Bible, you get all these descriptions of all the furniture. And so you've got lampstands, and you've got an ark, and you've got uh, tables, and you've got altars, and you've got curtains and tents and tent poles and all of this stuff, right? And how many steps are there? And what do the, what do the uh, bulls look like that are under the wash basin? And all this detail of all these things. And what is the oil made of? And how is it made? And, and what, what the penalty was for making anything like it? And all of this detail. It's pages and pages and pages of detail. Of all of the furniture and all of the construction of both the tabernacle and the temple is all filled in. And this is covered with gold, and this is to be decorated with pomegranates, and this is to be decorated uh, with olive leaves, and da 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 right? And you read all this, and you go, wow, this is really detailed. But you know what you don't find in there? Something that every one of you has in your house. Chairs. There's not a single solitary chair in either the tabernacle or the temple. Do you know why? Because prior to Jesus, the sacrifices were continually offered and continually needed to be offered because they were anticipatory. They looked forward to the coming of Messiah who would put an end to sacrifice. And a priest's work was never done, and so he never sat. But the book of Hebrews tells us that when this priest had offered one sacrifice for all sin, for all people, for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because his work is done. He's the final priest who offered the perfect Lamb of God himself 
on the cross for you and me. And so he is seated. You know who else sits? Kings. Kings sit. And Jesus sits because he is not only priest, he is also king. And he rules from his father's right hand over all of us. And guess where he says we are? That we reign with Christ. Because his sacrifice as priest and as lamb was perfect. And that enabled his work as priest to be done. And now he reigns as king. And we will reign with him. That is amazing stuff. That we are going to reign with Christ. And so we are, Paul says, already seated with him. His work in the cross is finished. Our sin has been paid in full, and he sits now as king, reigning over the nations, and one day will establish his rule on the earth and then reestablish it in the new heavens and the new earth. And righteousness will dwell there, and we will reign with him. This is amazing. If this doesn't just make the hair stand up on the back of your neck, you need to wake up because this is exciting stuff that God has done all of this for us. Now, look at the last three verses at the reason why God did all these things. So that, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why did God do this? Why did he do all these things, saving and raising and bringing to new life and seating us with Christ? Why did he do all those things? So that all creation might see the vastness of God's grace. That no one looking at us from the standard of justice could ever say, God, you're not fair. That God, you're not just. I mean, that you're just, but you're not loving. You're not merciful. Because guess what? If he saved the likes of us, he is merciful beyond measure. If he saved even one of us who deserved to go to hell, then he is gracious far beyond any human being. But he saved not just one of us, not just a few of us, but billions of us. Literally billions of us. And the book of Revelation says, that there will be people standing around the throne of the Savior from every tribe and language, tongue and people. Every nation, every language, every people group, every kind of folk, rich, poor, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, whatever. Every kind of people, every language group, every people group, every kind of person will stand around the throne of God. Why? Because we are trophies of His grace. 
that in spite of what we did and in spite of who we are, that God loved us and saved us. Was it based on our good deeds? No. In fact, as the prophet Isaiah says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We have nothing to boast about in ourselves. In fact, we have everything of which to be ashamed. And yet, because God saved us, we do not need to hang our head when we come before him. It is not our work that saves us. It is God's work that saves us. Remember? Look at verse 10. Look what it says. For we are his workmanship. In other words, was it we that did it? Was it, was it that I finally gave enough money to church? That I finally walked enough old ladies across the street? Finally did enough good deeds? Finally prayed enough prayers? Finally read enough scripture? Finally got through, my, through the Bible in a year reading plan? Uh, was it finally that I finally got rid of enough sin? No. In fact, it was in the midst of my evil and sin and rebellion and rejection of God that He saved me. And... We are, his, we are the result of His work, not the result of our own. In fact, if it was up to us, we would all die and go to hell. But because it's up to God, He saved us out of our sin and brought us to the Son. Basically, it works like this. What did I contribute to my salvation? I did all the sinning. Every bit of it. <laughs> What did God contribute to my salvation? He did all the saving. All of it. Start to finish. From the, from the point at which I was deepest in my sin, God saved me at that point. He is saving me now, and He will save me in eternity. Because His promises are sure. And it is by grace that they come. Not by anything we earn, not by anything we merit, but because Christ loved us and he sacrificed himself for us and as the text says here it's not our own doing in other words what do you have to do with your salvation i can tell you in a word nothing what did god have to do with it everything so that no one can boast in other words nobody who goes to heaven will ever stand before god and say you're welcome I mean, you know, it was kind of a shabby place around here until I showed up. No. Okay? You contribute nothing to your salvation so that no one may boast of how great they are, but that all may boast of how great Jesus is and how great our God is that He loved us and sent the Son for us. And then after that, gave us the Spirit that we might live empowered to do the new life. And, and in fact, that's how verse 10 ends, that we were created anew in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, that, that it's as a result of our salvation that our lives are changed and therefore we want to do the things which cohere with the new life. That it is as, is as the outcome of our salvation that our life is changed and we begin to walk with Jesus by the Spirit and to live a transformed life, and to do good works. But we don't do them in order to gain our salvation. It is already ours. In fact, 
as I've said, listen to me now. It has already happened. We already have it if we have put our trust in Christ. And as a result of that, as we're filled with the Spirit, that we are motivated and led to do what is good that God might be praised by our life. So bottom line, God saved us that we might be on, on display before the whole world as trophies of His grace. He made us new so that God might display His great love and His mercy for sinners. He loves us and He loved us even when we were at our very worst. So, take just a second here. Think about, just for a second, just quietly, the worst sin you have ever committed. Maybe it's a particularly nasty thought you have had towards someone else. Maybe it's money that you stole. Maybe it's a relationship that was flagrantly immoral. Whatever it is. Think about that and then think about this. That Jesus hung on the cross and his last words, do you remember what they were? It is finished. The legal financial term that means paid in full. Canceled out. And that you can write that over the top of every single one of every sin you have committed or will commit. Not that that's a license to sin. In fact, if we are transformed, we ought to want to live the new life. Amen? But it is to say that we never have to despair. We never have to wonder whether or not God still loves me. Does God still love me? Yes. How do I know? Because even when I was already at my worst, He loved me then and saved me then. He still loves me now and loves you now and loves you now and you and you and you and you and you and you and you. Every one of us He loves. So, let me ask. Are these things true of you? Are you absolutely confident where you would go today? Walk out on 29, get hit by a cement truck. Boom. Check out. Have a heart attack. Have a stroke while driving to KFC. Whatever. Where would you go? Would your death be like I described of opening your eyes into the presence of the Savior? Or would you open your eyes into something very different? Into darkness and flame and the wrath of God. And if you don't know for sure, for sure, because the Scripture tells us we can know. In fact, the Scripture even writes about our salvation as in the past tense, as something we can already possess. You don't know for sure where you would go. Can I beg you, plead with you, exhort you, invite you to put your trust in Jesus Christ today? The scripture says today, if you hear his voice, do not turn back. 
Put your trust in Jesus Christ right now. Believe that he is the son of God who died on the cross to take the penalty for your sin. That he might take away the power of sin over your life. That he might take away the penalty of sin and death and hell for you. Believe that he died on the cross, not just for people, but for you. And then also believe that he was raised from the dead to give you new life. That if you had been the only person in all of human history who had ever needed saving, that the Savior would have come for you because he loves you. That is the testimony of the Scripture. That is the gospel message. That is the only message which separates sheep from goat, heaven from hell, believer from unbeliever, son of disobedience from son of God, child of wrath from child of the king. You have a choice. What choice are you going to make? You've never put your trust in the Savior. Do so now. Right now, in your own heart, in your own life, do so now. The rest of us, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and therefore know for sure, can have confidence that if we, whatever happens to us, we go to prison, we get martyred, we go to some backwater Muslim village somewhere, start preaching the gospel, and they turn us into a rock pile. Whatever happens, hit by a cement truck, stroke out at KFC, whatever. Whatever happens to us, get cancer, suffer and linger for months and then die. Whatever it is, we can have confidence where we will go because we know the Savior. We were sons of disobedience resulting in God's wrath, but now we are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We were saved by grace through faith. There was one death for all sin, for all people, for all time, and it was credited to our account that we might be trophies of God's grace. Amen? That we might live as redeemed people, as sons of God, because we are no longer sons of disobedience. We are no longer children of wrath. We are trophies of God's grace. That He might put us on display before angels and men, and say, see how much I love men and women, sinners and rebels, that I bring them into my kingdom, bring them in, in fact, into my own family and call them sons. That is the most glorious message. And we have the privilege of proclaiming it to everybody. We have the right to say, Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did and loved me and gave himself for me and has already saved me such that I can put my complete confidence in the Savior. What we do ministry for, right? What we're about as a church. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light and made us sons That word son is so awesome. Because it is in the in the in the Bible, it is sons who have the inheritance. 
And we have an inheritance we have waiting for us. Life in the presence of God, adopted by God as His Son, so that Jesus is our brother and God is our Father, and the Spirit indwells us to empower us to live for Him. Fantastic. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, as we contemplate so great salvation, we do not know what to do except fall on our faces before you in worship and in praise and in adoration, which will begin now and continue into eternity because none of us deserve to be called your sons. If we are sons of anything, we were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. But you and your grace saw fit to send the Savior, Jesus Christ, to bring us out of obedience to and following Satan and the way of this world and the desires of our flesh and into following Christ through the power of the Spirit who indwells. Father, we thank you for such great salvation. We proclaim your grace and your mercy, and we love you because you have first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.